This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nutshell Politics this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Justin Kinney, and I will be your charming host this week as we discuss a concept episode on human rights. I want to talk a little bit about what human rights are, kind of how they've come about, how they've developed over the years, what legal protections there are for them, and just really dig into this concept as it pertains to like international law, international relations, and the like. So, uh, let's go ahead and dive in. So the concept of individual human rights is kind of an interesting one. Before World War II, any sort of claim you had to their, like there being individual human rights generally lacked any real legitimacy on the world stage. Uh, Pre-World War II, actually I should say pre-World Wars in general, state sovereignty, group rights kind of took precedence. But that doesn't mean they didn't exist at all. There were several uh, historical examples of people who tried to kind of push for human rights or enshrined it into local codes and things like that. Um, just as a couple quick examples, probably one of the more famous ones is the Code of Hammurabi, or Hammurabi's Code. Sometimes you'll hear it called that as well. This is about 17 to 1800 BC, and it's a probably one of the most famous examples of ancient law documents. And in this particular case, there were, you know, rules, punishments, etc., on a variety of issues, including, you know, certain types of rights for you know, men, women's rights, children's rights, etc. Even goes into, I think, slaves and slave owners. And so there was this, these kind of like, like, it was like a legal codex of sorts that tried to enshrine some of this. Uh, we also saw, you know, a- the ancient Egyptians that promoted certain types of individual rights. It was particularly with regard to like property and and paying off debts and things like that. But really, the kind of the first, I don't know if I want to say that what one of the first like big points that will generally be named as the origin of human rights kind of comes about in the year 539 BC, and this goes back to uh, an emperor named Cyrus the Great. Now, Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon uh, in this year, and he freed all the slaves and made this formal declaration that people had the right to choose their own religions. Uh, he tried to establish racial equality, and so they they took this kind of clay cylinder, kind of a baked clay cylinder, and carved certain precepts into it, and this becomes known as the Cyrus Cylinder. And Interestingly, it's this cylinder whose provisions actually become the inspiration for what we'll talk about in a minute, which is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that was declared in 1948. And so this Cyrus Codex is frequently pointed to as kind of the origin of what we consider individual human rights. Again, there were a couple sporadic examples before this, but the Cyrus Cylinder becomes a lot more widespread and it really kind of codifies what those rights are in more detail. Now, moving forward, we have things like the Magna Carta, uh, which was kind of the start of what we consider modern democracy. 
And so the Magna Carta builds on the Cyrus Cylinder, and it kind of gets into principles of equality, uh, like under the law anyway. And, and so the Magna Carta starts to kind of push it further down this road. But still, even with these kind of classic examples, we don't really see individual rights as a universal concept. And even though, again, there were a few states that did kind of guarantee human rights on like a local level, no one really seemed interested in expanding that to the rest of the globe. It, it remained locally bound within certain empires or certain states. Uh, there was no kind of written code of international human rights. It was all very much dependent on where you were located within a state or within maybe a region or something to that effect. And there was really no effort to extend that beyond the borders to some sort of international standard that should be followed. And so this all begins to change in the World Wars, particularly World War II, with the Holocaust, Adolf Hitler, the massive destruction of human life that took place here, and beyond that too, not even just the killing of human life, but the torture and horrific mistreatment that took place toward the Jews and other groups under the Nazi regime. And so this really kind of emphasize to the global community that there needed to be something that would codify what it really meant to have fundamental human rights worth you know what what is what does it mean for a person to have value uh, and these sorts of things because the atrocities that were committed by Nazi Germany really drove home the point that the international community needed to more specifically and sufficiently define these rights and then do their best to try to enforce them. And so the UN Charter uh, comes along in this time period, it reaffirms this faith in fundamental human rights and dignity and worth of the human person. That's a direct quote. And it committed any sort of state that joined the, the UN to promote, I'm going to quote again, universal respect for and observance of human rights and fundamental freedoms for all without distinction as to race, sex, language, or religion. And so this came about, but it needed to be a little bit more specified. And so we have what, what is called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And this was established in 1948. You'll hear it sometimes called the UDHR, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And since that point, human rights as a concept has spread. But this became kind of the first agreement internationally on human rights. Now it is considered what's called a soft law, which means that it's uh, hard to enforce. There's no like really built-in enforcement mechanism for it. It's more of a declaration, as, as you would suggest from the name, than it is a, an international law per se. But the spread of human rights since this UDHR has really made a lot of steady progress. And there's all kinds of human rights treaties over the years since that have been ratified. Now, before we kind of move forward, though, I want to talk about defining human rights because this is this has actually become a bit of a a really important crux of understanding the concept because human rights has been given to, or I should say, human rights has been defined as anything from you know the right of freedom of speech and religion to the right of marriage to the right to have freedom from torture to the right to a living wage, uh, the right to an education the right to certain cultural values. And there's a lot of disagreement about which of those that I just listed, and obviously there's dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds more uh, that might fall under this category as well, which of those are really human rights and which of those are more human wants and what should the government be protecting, what should it not? And there's a lot of debate over this. 
Uh, and so I wanted to kind of drive in a little bit on what the definition is, kind of more legally speaking. Uh, and even to some point, some people would be a theological argument or a philosophical argument. And really what we're talking about here with human rights, these are rights that all individuals possess simply by virtue of being human, regardless of their status in society, regardless of economic level, regardless of gender or a race or membership in a certain state or a group. You don't have to be a member of a country or a citizen of a country to be granted human, basic human rights. And these are things that should be universal and equal. In other words, somebody having a higher status shouldn't grant them more of this right. They sh this right should exist kind of across the spectrum for all. Uh, again, universal and equal. Now, traditionally what we're talking about here kind of follows what are frequently called Western ideals which has led to some criticism by more Eastern countries. But the, the idea here is that the primary unit of concern for human rights is the individual. And what that individual person, again, by virtue of simply being human, deserves. You know, what, what was their right regardless of, of anything else? You know, what is their virtue? What is their worth? And what, what rights in modern society should they have? And so you have this primary unit of concern being the individual, not the community, not the society, not the state. And you frequently see the kind of primary focus on the idea of freedom. Freedom becomes primary in human rights above all other values. Now, traditionally, this has been a huge focus on like political rights and economic rights. And we'll get to that in a little bit. I'm going to talk about what the UDHR entail in a little more detail. But the, the idea of political and economic rights were kind of the first ones to crop up in the the broader concept of human rights. However, as I mentioned, this does seem to generally follow, you, follow Western ideals, which has led to a criticism that promoting human rights is really just a means for Western powers, the United States and others, to increase their influence in more Eastern countries. And so particularly you know, China, uh, the Middle East, has seen a lot of protests against freedom of expression. There was even a I forget who, who said this, but there was a quote from some leader in the Middle East that called the promotion of human rights Western terrorism because a lot of these cultures, particularly in the Eastern world, value stability and order within society higher than individual or personal liberties. Whereas in the West, we tend to focus very much on like personal liberty, personal freedom, individuality uh, being primary and most important. A lot of the Eastern cultures value stability in that role. As being the primary issue and so when you have this concept of human rights being pushed that says no no the individual is more important uh, than stability in society a lot of these eastern cultures are really pushed back on that and so there has been kind of this push and pull between the, the east and the west as to whether or not human rights are something that should be granted to all or if this is some sort of like western mentality that's just being forced onto different cultures as a way to spread western influence uh, but let's go ahead and take take a step back. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the UDHR in particular. So the UDHR, again, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, was established in 1948, and it really was two different agreements. So the first one is something called the ICCPR, or the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And this one was mostly focused on those same things I mentioned before, kind of the Western-style rights, uh, but the right to life, liberty, and freedom of thought, freedom of religion. Those are kind of the big four. Now, the other one, the other document was 
was really more of an Eastern mindset a little bit, uh, but also more of kind of a, it reflected a more socialist ideology. So you have to remember kind of end of the Cold, or sorry, end of uh, World War II, we kind of shifted into the Cold War, and there were two major powers at the time, the United States, which rep represented Western values, and the Soviet Union, which reflected more socialist ideology. And so the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, that ICCPR, reflected the Western style, but you also had the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, or the ICESCR. And that was more reflective of a socialist ideology that also kind of meshed into what the UDHR tried to entail. And so this was more about things like the right to a living wage, uh, the right to education, and, and things along that nature. A little bit more economics, again, in name, economic, social, cultural issues. But this has led to a lot of debate about, you know, are there certain rights, human rights, that are more important rights than others? In particular, the ICCPR, that first one, the more Western-style rights, there's, uh, it's broken down to several different articles within it. Article 4 specifically permits the suspension of certain rights during, say, public emergencies. I think they use the phrase social or public emergency. But it also says there are other rights that are what, what are called non-derogable. Uh, and that's, that's a fancy term. Basically just means that they can never be suspended in any circumstance. And so these would be things as like recognition as a person, uh, freedom from torture, freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. And so the ICCPR says these particular rights are non-derogable. They can never be suspended. Interestingly, though, when you actually start to look at the statistics on this, these particular rights are not actually enforced any more than others. So even though the, uh, the UDHR, in particular the, the ICCPR, breaks it down into derogable and non-derogable rights, you don't actually see a difference played out in like real practical society. But this has also led to some questions as, should there be other things included in the UDHR or some sort of future document that are also rights? And there's no real consensus on this, even among states that are very similar in culture and economies. Um, just as a couple examples on this, uh, the right to healthcare is one that's been hotly debated. You know, do we have a basic human right, simply by being human, to access healthcare? And it's a tricky, it's a tricky question because are we saying that there's something unique about being human that guarantees we should have healthcare, or is that something that is just a luxury that we have developed over time that we should you know, that people want to have but isn't necessarily a basic human right? Another example of this would be the right to avoid capital punishment or the death penalty. Uh, the ICCPR specifically limits this to very serious crimes, but it also has in place kind of an optional protocol within it. Um, so that you can abolish it if you want. And something like 70 to 80 states have actually signed on to abolish capital punishment entirely. They've signed the protocol, and something like 140 in total have abolished it, even if they haven't signed on to the protocol within the ICCPR. And interestingly, the United States is actually not one of those. So despite the United States being a huge pusher of human rights and the UDHR in general, this particular issue of capital punishment or the death penalty is one that we have not signed on to and we have not abolished. And so this this interaction of trying to develop a cultural, sorry, a, sorry, a universal list of what are human rights and what are not across cultures is very, very contentious. And it's a very sensitive topic, even among you know some of the major world powers like the United States and China uh, and countries like that. 
And so we have the, this kind of question as to whether or not the UDHR actually does anything as well. And on the other side of the short commercial break, which we're about to take, we're going to talk a little bit about why countries uh, sign human rights treaties, why they continue to violate human rights, uh, and you know, why countries may stop violating human rights and kind of what the distinctions are on those cases. Uh, but stick with me for a short 60-second commercial break, and I'll be back on the other side to talk about that. So thanks so much, and I will see you guys in a minute. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks so much for sticking with me through that short commercial break. Now, before the break, we were talking about human rights, and we were talking a little bit about the legal side of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the UDHR. But on this side of the break, I want to talk a little bit more about the, the politics of, of human rights. Why do states violate human rights in the first place? And why do they sign human rights treaties? And, and further, do treaties actually prevent human rights from being violated? And these are actually really interesting questions uh, because obviously a lot of countries have signed on to these treaties, but they still continue to violate human rights. So why do they do it and why even bother signing on? So the first question, why do states violate human rights? This is uh, a tricky one because there's a lot of different reasons that they might. Uh, one I've already kind of hinted at to this idea of like human rights being a promotion of, of cultural values over, you have one culture over another. And so there is this issue of sovereignty that some nations push back against human rights because they see it as interference from other countries. And a classic example of this would be China. China, China tends to deflect a lot of foreign challenges to their human rights record, which is pretty terrible, as being other countries trying to influence them or interfere in their in their culture. And so the distinction between particularly Eastern and Western cultures, but even within those, you have sovereignty issues of are human rights really about spreading influence or is there something else going on here? And so states violate human rights for sovereignty concerns. Uh, we also have states that violate human rights to maintain power. Uh, we have states, like for instance, granting human rights may be threatening to a leader's power. And so they reserve rights for some sort of elite group. So a classic example of this would be the, the Kim family in North Korea. They can't really grant human rights to the people for concern about internal dissent. They're trying to suppress that. They imprison you know, any sort of political beliefs or actions. Uh, they sometimes engage in torture or negligence of prisoners. Another example of this would be President Bashir al-Assad in Syria. Uh, the Saudi royal family has been accused of this at times. Again, China would be an example where there is a different class of people kind of at the elite that have rights, but they suppress them at lower levels in society because any because granting those human rights may be a threat to the leader's power. So some countries violate human rights to maintain power. Uh, other times we, we see human rights violated for issues of national security. If you have some sort of foreign threat, this is actually one we've seen here in the United States. Uh, where a foreign power has some sort of threat on the United States, and so rights are restricted. The example for the United States that probably comes to mind first is the internment camps that the U.S. used for Japanese citizens during World War II. We thought Japan was trying to use American citizens of Japanese descent to infiltrate the United States, and so we basically suspended human rights for certain people groups within uh, society. Uh, we also more recently have Gu you know, Guantanamo Bay. We're going, undergoing harsh interrogation of people who are suspected terrorists, lack of due process. And these are things where these kind of fundamental basic human rights may be being violated because we see some sort of foreign threat to national security. 
So those three that I mentioned, so national security issues, sovereignty concerns, and maintaining power are more choices that states make to violate human rights. There is a fourth category of why states do this, and it's really one that's not a choice. It's more about their lack of capacity. Sometimes states don't have the physical capacity or the material monetary capacity to achieve certain international standards for human rights. You, either they can't afford schooling, they can't afford uh, to pay for some of these rights to protect people, or they can't control the military, they can't control the police, there's massive corruption, things like this. And so you tend to see this lack of capacity in the poorer states. And so that one, again, it's not really a choice per se. Sometimes they just don't have the ability to do it as well. Uh, but those are kind of the four big categories for why states violate human rights at all. But this kind of leads to the question of if we're violating human rights, kind of a global scale, why do countries continue to sign human rights treaties? So let's dive into that. So the big question, why do you sign a human rights treaty? And in particular, why do you sign it if you have no intention of actually pursuing human rights? We see that a lot. And so what we see frequently is the signature on a human rights treaty Again, because these treaties have no real enforcement mechanism or you know, power to, to punish states. But we see countries sign on as a signal to other states that they are committed to this. And sometimes we'll even see countries that, that sign on as a way to get other countries off their back. And then they can continue doing them behind the scenes. And we're going to talk about that in a minute when we talk about whether or not treaties actually work. But frequently we will see countries do this sign these things more as a signal to other states. Now, a lot of times they do sign on intending to follow human rights, and we do see that in certain cases, uh, particularly new democracies, countries that are in the process of democratizing, moving from autocracy to democracy. Uh, they sign these treaties to kind of prove their commitment to human rights, to lock them in. But again, these are, these are very signal-oriented moves. Uh, we also sometimes will see inducement from other states. You know, for instance, uh, to join the EU, you have to meet certain levels of human rights standards. And if you don't, then you can't join. Uh, we also see this from countries that receive monetary aid, that if you don't have certain, uh, you know, certain levels or standards for human rights, we, we won't trade with you or, or we won't give foreign aid. Uh, we won't enter into any sort of these economic agreements. And then kind of a further element too is, not even just like withholding reward of being able to join an, an organization, but we also see economic sanctions slapped on countries. North Korea is an example. Uh, South Africa had a lot of economic sanctions placed on them from other states uh, when Nelson Mandela was in prison. And while sanctions kind of globally are pretty rare, they are almost always associated with some sort of political imprisonment of dissenters, which is considered a violation of human rights. Um, but this does kind of raise some questions as to, do these treaties actually work? And this is a tough question because there actually is some evidence to suggest that a state that ratifies a human rights treaty is actually associated with even more violations of individual human rights kind of down the road. And there's, there's a lot of proposed reasons for why this is. You know, it's very costly to enforce the law, so it sucks up a lot of economic power within a state. Uh, sometimes we'll see, I kind of hinted at this earlier, these kind of abuser states that are abusing human rights may sign the treaty to improve their image internationally, get other countries off their back, which makes it easier for groups to stay in power while they can continue to do the practices a little bit more secretly. And so a lot of states uh, will do that as well, particularly some of the more egregious abusers of human rights. We also see some states where you will have like a multi-party system of sorts where one 
party is in power and will sign a treaty. But then when the other party comes to power, you know, either through some sort of revolution or sometimes even like a peaceful change in, in governance, the other power will kind of break that treaty because they weren't the ones who signed it. And so they, they don't necessarily feel like they need to adhere to it. And so we see these types of things actually demonstrate a possible correlation between signing a treaty and worse human rights violations. So then if this is if this is true, why, why did we continue to sign them? And really it has more to do with a sort of long-term effect, right? Basically there's this hope that a treaty will have a long-term positive effect through things called you know, transnational advocacy networks or creating some sort of social norm that over time will continue to improve. And there actually is more evidence for that. So in the short term, we do see correlations kind of pop up between signing a treaty and more violation of human rights. But over time, we're talking long time periods, decades, we have started to see some of these norms really start to catch on more and more, and we're seeing more and more protections for these things. Uh, as I said, human rights is, is kind of a relatively new concept, at least at the international or global level. Uh, so these kind of longer term effects have still yet to be seen. We are seeing some evidence for this, but again, we're talking less than 100 years since the, the UDHR was put into place. But we do have groups like, say, Amnesty International and others that kind of step in to play this role of being a, an advocacy group that helps kind of the long-term positive effects of these treaties. And so these, these TANs will step in and try to serve some sort of larger, larger political interest of the state. Uh, they'll work on you know helping to pressure states to take action. They'll monitor compliance. There's a huge moral argument here, kind of a philosophical argument of it is the right thing to do. And so a lot of groups are motivated by that. Uh, there's also you know personal interest that repression has this kind of tendency to spread if left unchecked. Uh, a lot of times there are groups. This sounds a little more cynical, but you know say there's a a group that wants to level the playing field competitively, keep their wages high, but say another country is able to drive down prices of a product because they, they abuse their workers. So raising the standard across the board, if you can't abuse your workers, will also manage to keep other industries' wages higher, uh, even if you know that means prices also go up. So there are some like particularist interests. Again, that's a little bit more cynical, but they do exist. But there also is this kind of reciprocal argument where, particularly in war, there's incentive to ensure that your soldiers are, are treated fairly because they're your citizens. If they've been captured as prisoners of war or something like that, you want them to be treated fairly. And so there's this kind of reciprocal argument that we promise we're going to treat other soldiers fairly, so therefore please treat ours as well. And so there's kind of a reciprocal caring about human rights. But a lot of it does kind of dive down to either kind of the moral argument of abusing human rights is wrong, which seems pretty obvious, but also kind of this personal interest in kind of a, a world that's becoming more and more globalized, that while lots of things can spread with globalization, repression can also spread. Now we do see, as I said, some evidence that these things are changing over time, but over the, say, the last 30 years or so, uh, human rights abuses have not significantly declined. Uh, there is hope that they are kind of it's a slow process, it's taking time, but it's not going at a particularly fast rate. And this is probably because the only organizations that are capable of enforcing these things don't actually have enforcement mechanisms in place. Just as an example, things like the ICC, right? The ICC is the International Criminal Court. It's kind of a transnational justice system that was put into place. 
And the ICC, you know, tries individuals for war crimes and things like this. And it was really important because it allowed for for individual people to be tried for violating human rights by committing abuses. And a lot of states have tried to kind of join on and accept the jurisdiction of the ICC, but there are quite a few countries that have not, uh, including the United States. And a lot of the reasoning behind this is that they claim it undermines sovereignty. There's no sort of accountability. There's no uh, oversight mechanisms in place. They argue the court of kind of public opinion on the global scale can be biased and will swing back and forth depending on whether the state in question is, is liked or not. It uh, gives way too much power to interpret laws that are pretty vague. Particularly, I talked about earlier, the definition of human rights kind of covers a lot of things. And there's a lot of um, criticism about it, a lot of debate about what things should be included, what things shouldn't. And so by giving a lot of power to interpret these particularly vague laws is, is a concern. Uh, and so the ICC relies very heavily on state cooperation to do so. Again, they don't have any enforcement mechanism. They don't have their own police forces, uh, probably, probably for the better, again, because the laws that they're interpreting can be very vague and soft. And so they, they rely very heavily on states to cooperate. And a state that is violating human rights is very unlikely to want to cooperate with a group that's going to punish them for violating human rights, particularly because the, the individuals who make the decision to go to the ICC frequently are the leaders, and the leaders tend to be the ones also abusing human rights. So there's this kind of disincentive for a lot of the particularly worst abusers where they don't see any need to go to these courts because they're going to be the ones being punished. But then you also see this kind of sovereignty argument that the U.S. makes and several other uh, major powers have made as well that it undermines a state's ability to kind of govern itself by giving power to some sort of outside entity where there's no oversight or control. But despite some, some of these concerns about whether or not protection of human rights is is growing or, or not, uh, there is still a lot of hope that kind of the protection will continue to improve. We're seeing more and more of these advocacy networks like Amnesty International. You work really hard and we have seen individual cases where they've managed to succeed. Just as an example, back in Argentina during the military junta regime in the 1970s, uh, there was something called, they call it the dirty war. There were a lot of kidnapped, tortured, killed, people over political dissent and tans were very instrumental in going in there and changing around the regime to protect journalists and political opponents of the leadership and so we have seen individual cases where these advocacy groups have been wildly successful the concern as i mentioned earlier is that it doesn't appear to be kind of a universal thing although there is hope that it will be moving in that direction and so for this to work kind of on a grander scale or international or global scale we're probably going to have to be looking at it at the domestic level first. You know, domestic TANs, domestic groups, creating some sort of international network where the people themselves are the ones who care enough about these concerns to create public awareness, to monitor compliance, to pressure states, you know, through naming and shaming or whatever else, whatever other tactics they use. And it really probably needs to be motivated by the compassion for suffering of others, right? Just as an example, these advocacy groups sometimes will show you images generate an emotional response. And so this kind of motivation of compassion for others is probably where we need to focus, again, much more at the individual level, uh, local level. Sometimes this is driven by re religious concerns for others. Sometimes it's, it's more of kind of a humanity aspect. 
And modern technology has made it very easy to spread imagery, to draw attention to things. And so as we kind of move forward, the push for human rights around the world, as we continue to kind of develop what human rights are and which ones are rights and which ones aren't, which is going to be a huge other issue, the best way to really ensure the rights of people is to start at that domestic level, to start with individuals who are motivated by, ca- by compassion and caring for the suffering of others, and then move forward from there. Uh, so if this is something you're really concerned about and you you're really want to get involved, look for groups like these, these kind of advocacy groups on the local level, domestic level, and ones particularly that have networks abroad. As I said, Amnesty does this, but there are plenty of others out there as well. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and close down the episode. Hope you enjoyed that. I know this is a little more of a conceptual episode. We didn't really talk about any current events, but I think it's a really interesting topic, and it's one that we don't really realize is a relatively new topic in the international community. Uh, at the global level, we didn't really see this until the World Wars, and the Holocaust changed a lot of that. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and shut things down. So if you are interested in getting in contact with me going forward, uh, you can find me on Twitter. My username is Justin R underscore Kinney. Find me, hit that follow button. I'd be happy to continue this conversation or any other. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook under J. Robert Kinney. That is the name I write fiction novels under. I have two mystery novels out right now. Uh, so go ahead and check those out. They're on Amazon. Again, it's under J. Robert Kinney. And the books are called Precipice and Splintered State. And you can find those both on Amazon and paperback and Kindle. Now, if you're interested in getting in contact with me about advertising on the podcast or supporting me or this podcast in any way, I do have a Patreon account online that you can check out. Uh, But you also just get in contact with me and I'd be happy to talk with you more about advertising or anything along those lines. Uh, But with that, we're going to go ahead and close out the episode. So thanks so much for tuning in and listening this week. Really appreciate it. And I will talk to you guys next time. This is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one.